All right, well, grace and peace. Yeah, good to be with all of you. So one of the, one of the facts that I'm sure a lot of you know is that uh, a lot of the food that is produced in the world today is thrown away. So in fact, the official statistics, I looked at a couple different articles on this, but they're, they're all in the ballpark of around half of the food that is produced today is ultimately thrown away. The EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, says that the biggest component of landfills, kind of surprised me, is actually discarded food. I would not have, have guessed that, but there's just, there's so much food that is produced that is not uh, consumed, and so it just goes directly into landfill. And uh, I, I grabbed a quote from an expert in the field, Dr. Tim Fox, who says, the amount of food wasted is staggering. This could be used to feed the world's growing population as well as those in hunger today. The reasons for this situation range from poor engineering and agricultural practices, inadequate transport and storage infrastructure, through to supermarkets demanding cosmetically perfect foodstuffs. So he says there's a range of causes for half of the food being thrown away. But he, he touched on the fact that there's, this could easily be used to fix the hunger problem that's out there today. So I looked this up again to get the latest stats on this. So this surprised me how high the number was. But again, I looked at a couple sources to make sure I was getting an accurate estimate here. About 9 million people per year are dying of hunger and hunger-related diseases. 9 million. So just to calibrate you here, COVID has been with us for two years, and the estimate is about 5 million people have died from COVID. So that's, let's call it 2.5 million per year, making it oversimplified um, from COVID. 9 million a year from hunger. That's a lot. And entirely preventable. There's absolutely no reason why even one of those deaths need to occur. But there's this huge mismatch between all this resource over here that's going unused and underutilized. And then over here, you've got all this need, and the two aren't really being connected. So we're going to read today um, about another mismatch that Jesus is particularly burdened about. And uh, I'd like us to turn to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to read verses 35 to 38. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. We read th verse 35 last time, but it's, it's sort of a bridge verse, so I want to I read that one again. So it's a short passage. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray. Father, as we come before your word here and we get to see the, the burden on Jesus' heart, I pray that we too would be burdened, that we would walk out of this, this room with a fresh 
view on where the world is today, on, on the real state of affairs that is happening all around us, but we, we scarcely choose to see. I pray, Father, that you would help us to, to dare to open our eyes, to dare to see and dare to act. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So hopefully you remember from last time that Matthew 9.35 is almost identical to Matthew 4.23. So I spent, I've spent a couple of sessions going over the structure of the Sermon on the Mount, and we talked about that inclusio that's used that starts right before the Sermon on the Mount, and it goes through the end of Matthew chapter 9, specifically verse 35. And it, it marked out that diptych Again, hopefully we remember this. We've talked about this a couple times now. The, le- the left-hand side of that diptych is the Sermon on the Mount. The right-hand side of the diptych is the kingdom proclaimed or the Sermon on the Move, which is uh, basically the, the way where you see the Sermon on the Mount lived out. So kingdom proclaimed on the left-hand side, kingdom demonstrated on the right-hand side. And... Chapters 8 and 9 go back and forth. They oscillate between these demonstrations of Jesus' authority with his teachings on discipleship. I'm not going to go over that summary. It's, it's up online now uh, over the last couple of messages, so you can, you can hopefully watch that if you missed it. But verse 35 is, is really interesting. We didn't spend much time on verse 35. It, it summarizes a lot of... Jesus's ministry, particularly his ministry before the cross. And so it it summarizes it with three verbs, teaching, preaching, and healing. Everyone see that in verse 35? So it goes about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Okay, so what do these three verbs mean? Teaching is basically teaching the Old Testament, right? There was this practice that synagogues had where they would have a reading from the Old Testament scriptures and they would have someone give an exposition of what that passage meant. Uh, There's some powerful examples of this teaching in the book of Ezra where you get to see kind of a real life account of how how that was like. And the significance of this is that Jesus was teaching in their synagogues. And Jesus says that he didn't, didn't come to destroy the law and prophets, he came to fulfill them. So it makes sense that he would teach from the law and the prophets. There was a rootedness that we have in Jesus's ministry that was a, a Jewish rootedness, rooted in the scriptures of the Old Testament. And good expository teaching has always been, been rare. It's always been in short supply. And we know that Jesus was a renowned teacher. So he would, he would teach, but then he would also preach the gospel of the kingdom, the second verb. And so he would bring forth something new. So he would teach the Old Testament, but then he would also uh, fulfill. He would show what the fulfillment of the Old Testament was like. He went beyond the Old Testament and, and broke new ground in the exciting story of the gospel of the kingdom. So bringing forth something new as well as teaching what was old. And then the third verb that's used here is healing. Uh, the Greek word is therapevo, so we get our word, English word therapeutic from it. And we can call this, is, this Jesus' therapeutic ministry. He goes around and he heals. He heals people of many different diseases. 
And there's a lot of different reasons why I think he does this. And I think this is, this is fairly consensus that one of the reasons that he does miracles is to demonstrate the veracity of what he taught and preached, right? So there's a confirmatory power. If you're doing miracles, it makes you want to believe the words of the person who spoke. But beyond that, I think there's also a demonstration of God's kindness and God's goodness that accompanies his teaching and preaching, that enables his words to be received uh, more readily. In 1 Corinthians 13, there's a famous line where Paul says, though I speak with the tongues, the languages of men and angels, but have not love, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And Jesus, just as a teacher, apart from his, his healing ministry, would be a very different portrait of Jesus, wouldn't it? Someone who, who doesn't have that same level of connection and healing people. And so I love all three there combined together. Teaching from the Old Testament, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing, showing God's love to the people that he was ministering among. Okay, so now we'll go into verse 36. Verse 36, I think, gives us such a profound insight into who Jesus is. It tells us what his fuel is, how he, how he is motivated. So it says in verse 36, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered. This is the New King James, like sheep having no shepherd. Okay, now I think a lot of you have heard me enough to know that there's, a, there's kind of a special word in this verse here, and that word is compassion, right? So anytime you see the word compassion, it should, it should draw your attention. It's, a, it's kind of a, a trigger word, a special word. It's only used 12 times in the entire Bible. It's not actually used at all in the Septuagint, and it's only found in the Gospels. And every time you see this word used, it's about Jesus or in Jesus' mouth. Okay, it's a, it's a very unique word here. And it's, it's a bit of a trigger word because when you see Jesus have compassion, he's about to do something significant. So for example, the feeding of the 5,000, he has compassion on these people that have been there for several days. And of course, we know the story of the miracle that he does. It's often uh, a trigger word for a miracle. He'll see a leper approach him and he'll have compassion on that leper and he'll go and heal that, that leper. So it's a, it's a powerful word there that is essential Jesus, right? When you think of the word compassion, just think Jesus there. Uh, the, the word is splanknizome or splanknizomai, depending on your pronunciation. And that's where we get our English word spleen, right? And I've mentioned this before, that the spleen is the organ that is deep in your, your guts. Like it's, if you're healthy, you can't even feel your spleen. It's on your left side, under your ribs, if you really, really poke hard, you might be able to touch your, your spleen, but it's pretty hard to do so. And it, it gets at this idea that it's sort of like your inmost being, your, 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 your absolute core, your, your gut, your heart, like what's, what's really in there, your deepest insides being moved. And the English word compassion, I think you can hear it just even in that word, it's a good word, so come, that C-O-M, is, is from a Latin word cum, which is with, and then passion is suffering. So to have compassion is to suffer with someone. That's the English sense of it, which is very good 
understanding of that word. So we can say, we can kind of reword verse 36 to say, but when he saw the multitudes, he suffered with them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd, okay? So I think that's a good sense. Like he's, he's moved from his, his inside to suffer with them. This is a very profound feeling here. Okay, so my first point, I have, I have uh, several points I'm gonna go through here. My first point is that, it's an obvious one, but profound, I think, is that Jesus sees people with compassion, not with apathy or disdain. Jesus sees people with compassion, not with apathy or disdain. So I told you that compassion is this signature word for Jesus. It's his hallmark. And so if, if Jesus is in you, you will be a person filled with compassion. You just will. On the, on the contrary, when we see the scribes and the Pharisees, they're really more condescending, they're more apathetic, they're harsher, they sort of have this people get what you deserve type spirit around them. And it's, it's such a difference, isn't it? The, the compassion that Jesus has, particularly towards the common people versus the Pharisees and the scribes that have this kind of looking down attitude towards them. So I, I, I think that this is actually uh, something that we need to check our hearts around which is basically how you look at people when you are walking around, when you go to Boston Common, when you're at Harvard Square, when you're on the subway, when you're in, in a setting where there's people. If, you're, if you have Jesus in you, you will have this deep well of compassion that comes out. If you're more on the Pharisee scribe side, it'll be apathy, condescension, ugh, what are those, what's wrong with those people, right? Kind of this, this looking down on them. And it is, it is um, sobering and uh, striking to me how much even people who are who supposed to have or supposed to have a healing ministry actually have condescending or apathetic attitudes. So I, I worked for several years in various hospitals in the Boston area, and you you go on rounds a lot, right? So as med, med school, intern, residency, fellowship, all those, you're constantly going on rounds. And you only spend a small amount of your time with the patient. So it's like, it's definitely less than 10% of your time you're with the patient. Most of the time, you're internally talking and making plans and all that. And I was very struck by this when I was in medicine that only a very small percentage of physicians really had compassion for their patients. Uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was really a letdown. I, I remember working at Mass General and Brigham and a lot of these children's hospitals, and so much of it was you wanted to have a short list of patients. Everyone has their own list of patients, and you're always like trying to get them out the door and just push them out. And people are much more like a number, and, and, and you, you pretty quickly get jaded and lose, lose your compassion for them. A lot of condescension, a lot of apathy. Sometimes it's overt, but mostly it was subtle. And I would say that you didn't hear a lot of suffering with patients, right? That was not the hallmark of my experience on the rounds. And I would say the number one problem was that everyone was just busy. Everyone was just way too busy to actually take the time to have compassion, to suffer with their patients. And so again, when you do this heart check on yourself here, and think about, okay, 
We all see a lot of people, if you, especially if you work in Boston, uh, freeways, the, the, all the settings that, that are downtown. Is your driver, is your heart compassion, or is it your own agenda or a subtle disdain? Okay, so, so some of you might be saying, okay, if I'm really honest with myself, I sense a lot of apathy. I sense some disdain or even disgust at people. Um, how do I correct this? What's the remedy for this? Well, I have good news for you. The rest of the verse gives us the remedy here. So look at, look at what the rest of the verse says. He says, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. So why does Jesus have compassion? So as I mentioned, the New King James uses the words weary and scattered. In, in Greek, it's eskulmenoi ke erimenoi, and you can hear the two men's there, so it's, these are passive participles, which is very significant. The fact that they're passive participles shows that these people have been acted upon. They're, they're victims, in a sense. The, the words are not easy to translate in Greek, and I looked at them up in a bunch of different English translations, and English translations are all over the map. The King James uses, they fainted and were scattered abroad. The ESV uses harassed and helpless. The NLT uses confused and helpless. I looked it up in, in BDAG, uh, which is kind of the, the scholarly lexicon, and it's very interesting. It says that the etymology of that first word, that eskulmenoi, is to flay the skin, to like to picture an animal being skinned alive. That's the, the, the etymologic origin of the word. And so if you picture then this crowd here that is being skinned, that is being harassed, and then again, it's, they're passive, right? These, you all know what I mean by passive verbs here, right? They're not active verbs. So, so uh, uh, an active verb would be, I hit the ball. A passive verb would be, I was hit by the ball, right? Um, so in this case, both participles are passive. So the, the group that Jesus is seeing is being acted upon. And if you picture this group of people that is being skinned alive, uh, they're being assailed by somebody, it's not clear who, and the, the, the subject of that passive verb isn't supplied. Um, but it's a, it's a heart-rending scene. There is no nightmare that you've had. There's no battlefield scene that you've ever read about. There's no murder scene that you've ever seen described that is more tragic or emotive than the spiritual scene that is all around us all the time. The only question is if you see it by faith. It's there, but do you see it by faith? Okay, so... A couple, uh, a couple weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, I was in, I was in Canada, and we, we had a long discussion about a really, really sad um, setup that I had read a little bit about, but I didn't know a, a whole lot about. And this, this particular setup uh, is, is called the, the, the Canadian Indigenous Residential School System. So they had this school system that was set up where... Of course, there's a lot of Native Americans that originally inhabited what we today call Canada. And what happened was the Canadian government worked with a variety of churches, mostly it was the Catholic Church, but other denominations as well, 
and they required that the native, the native Americans, the native Canadians that were there, send their children to these schools to be basically re-socialized and learn the language and all of that. And, and so we were talking about this when I was in Canada, and I knew a little bit about it, but I decided to read, read up on it both there and since then. And I'm just gonna read you a little true story of a survivor from this. Uh, several thousand children died in this school, in this school system. Uh, so this, this individual here, I think it's a pseudonym, John Jones. Uh, so he says, when we walked into the door, there were supervisors there. My sisters went in one direction and I followed my older brothers. And the supervisor asked me to follow him to the third floor. The hallways were long and dark. The dorms, it was one great big room. It was cold, really cold. It was really uncomfortable during the night. The supervisor handed me a brown bag and clothes that they issued and proceeded to walk me into the shower room where I was told to get undressed. And a whole bunch of white powder was put on my head and all over my body. And I was asked to shower and then told to change into the clothes. Just to give some background here, more than 150,000 children go through this system. And it's been said that the, the purpose of the school was, according to a 2015 report from the Canadian Truth and Reconciliation Commission, they called it cultural genocide. And it was run by someone named Duncan Campbell Scott. And this is a quote from Duncan Campbell Scott who said, I wanted to get rid of the Indian problem I do not think as a matter of fact that the country ought to continuously protect a class of people who are unable to stand alone. Our objective is to continue until there is not a single Indian in Canada that has not been absorbed into the body politic. Okay, so now I'll go back to this John Jones. A friend told me not to speak my language or talk about the tradition because if you do, you will get punished. <clears throat> One of the things we had to watch uh, was our supervisor strap our friends with a strap that was made out of a fire hose. And it would not just be on the hand, so we had to watch him. And to this day, I, I can't speak our traditional language, and I think it's because of watching my friends get strapped for speaking their language. Boys sometimes peed their bed, and the counselor would make us form two lines facing each other with our belt in our hands. And as each of the persons that was being punished for peeing the bed pa passed, we would have to whip them with our belt as they passed to the lines. I chose not to whip my friends, and as a result, I had to go through the line and get whipped myself. I'd seen one of my friends with a chocolate bar, and I asked where he got it. After he said he got it from a male supervisor called Mr. Flint. You know, so I went and asked him if I could have a chocolate bar. He said he hasn't got one, but if I go back while everybody's asleep, he'd give me one. So I waited for everybody to fall asleep. And I went to him, went to his office, and he showed me into his bedroom that was attached to the office. I won't read what happens there, but there was sexual abuse that happened. This individual uh, later pleaded guilty to abusing 18 children at sen sentencing. And uh, the, the man, John Jones, says, I don't know how long that lasted, but I know I threw the chocolate bar into the garbage and took baths three or four times a day to feel clean, and it didn't help. Though almost 60 years have passed, John Jones still remembers the searing loneliness, the pain that came from being separated from his family. His parents had no choice. For nearly seven generations, almost every indigenous child in Canada was forced to live in the residential schools. He says, I learned it as an adult that if my parents didn't send us, that they would be looking at a jail sentence. Okay, so any human being is gonna read this and think, 
horrible, terrible, right? This is just one of the most unconscionable things that we can, we can uh, contemplate here. When Jesus is looking at the crowds, he's seeing a scene that's even more tragic than this. This is why Jesus is such an emotional person. This is why he's a person who is not ashamed to, to cry, weep in public. He sees something in this scene even more intense and heartbreaking. What's, what's helpful about the illustration with children is that you feel for children because they're children, right? They don't, they're, not, they're not the ones that are making these decisions for themselves. They're, they're victims of a system that had taken advantage of them and was leading to their abuse. <clears throat> Jesus was a person who felt very, very deeply, and in this case felt a compassion as he saw this multitude of victims that was harassed and helpless. Okay, we get a second analogy about why Jesus feels compassion towards them, which is it says that they're like sheep without a shepherd. So first, they're, again, depending on your translation, harassed and helpless. Um, the, actually, there was a really good translation that, that I found in a commentary where the author suggested mangled and cast down. Um, he did a very careful word study, and he proposed that, that would be the best way to understand what Jesus sees. He sees a group of people that are mangled and cast down. So, so now we get to this second clause where he sees people like sheep without a shepherd. I wish we had time to go through this in the Old Testament. That expression or that concept is used many times in the Old Testament. I'll read the citations. I would encourage you to look, at, look it up on your own because there's some really great insights here that we won't have time to explore. But it's used in Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 5 to 6. It's used in Numbers chapter 27, verse 17, 1 Kings 22, verse 17, 2 Chronicles 18, 16, and Zechariah chapter 10, verse 2. And it's, it's, it always entails a sense of failure of leaders there. When you look at all those, sheep without a shepherd is, is always about leaders failing. Now, it's not a particularly flattering description to call people sheep, um, but it does highlight our needs and our weaknesses, right? And I'll say the older I get, the more I feel like a sheep and the more I realize that we, are, we all are sheep. Um, so my, my second point is that seeing people as injured sheep helps induce compassion. Seeing people as injured sheep helps induce compassion. Now, I, you know, and I don't, I don't want to make any more of this than need to, but I, I'll just say for myself, I'm a person who I really, I really don't like hurting animals. There's something about an animal that's hurt or wounded that just really bothers me. I kind of feel like it's humans' jobs to like not let that happen. And the reason I don't eat meat is because I can't imagine, like if I was in a field with a cow, I couldn't imagine like in a knife, I couldn't, couldn't possibly kill it. I just know myself. I just wouldn't have the heart to do it. I would pet it and like be like, "Nice cow." I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't be able to do it. And so I decided because I didn't have the heart to kill it. Why should I eat it? it didn't feel very honorable there, right? So that was at least for me how I came to that decision. Um, and but even if you're not there, and if you are able to kill an animal, again, you're 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 more uh, more tough than I am. But hopefully, at least the picture of like an injured animal would at least evoke some compassion 
from you or an animal like a sheep, which is, that's a cute animal, right? We gotta all admit, a sheep is a, a cute looking animal that, that is, is something that, that I'm not a farmer, but I, I actually enjoy, enjoy uh, looking at sheep and there's something about a sheep that is just so, so interesting. You know, they're, they're like terrible from the perspective of predators because they don't run very fast. They're these big, white, fluffy balls, so they're, like, they're not camouflaged at all. They have no teeth, no fangs of any value whatsoever. So like, they're pretty much like sitting ducks. It's a mixed metaphor. Um, but they're, they're, uh, they're, they're sitting sheep out there that have no ability to defend themselves. And a sheep without a shepherd is not going to do very well. I think, I think we all know that. And... When Jesus looks at this scene here of all the people, he sees that there's basically a leadership problem. Parents, teachers, pastors, bosses, leaders of all kinds, babysitters, you name it, people have failed. Whether we care to admit it or not, the vast majority of who you are today, the vast majority of who you are, is the product of the leaders in your life. Your parents, your teachers, your pastors, the bosses, all the sorts of leaders that have invested in you, they have formed you way, 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 way more than you, you know, right? And the sooner we admit that, the sooner we can actually look at one another with compassion because so much of who we are is deter- has been determined by our environment, by circumstances that we did not select. I gave a talk on racism it was a while ago, a year ago, a year and a half ago, something like that. And I, I said that there's two ways of looking at people in an individualistic sense or in a structuralist sense. And it's not an either or, it's a both and. But a lot of the debates that people have are because some people look at, at, at others primarily as in an individualistic sense. Pick yourself up by the bootstraps. You can do it, right? Other people look at others more in a structuralist sense. They see themselves as the product of many generations of, of influences there. And the individualistic side tends to be, not always, but tends to be lower in compassion because if they see a problem, it's like, it's your fault, fix it, get up, you work harder, you know, that, that type of thing. And there can be imbalances there. And I've, as I said in my talk on this, I don't try to make them opposed, but as complementary explanations. And I'm definitely not saying that Jesus would neglect individual responsibility. But here, in this passage, he seemingly looks at the world through a structuralist perspective, right? He sees people here as sheep without a shepherd. He sees them with compassion because he feels that they have been misled and harmed as a result of their environment. Consequently, consequently, he suffers with them. He has compassion with suffering with them. Okay. So then in verse 37, Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Okay, so we now have the classic problem that refers back to what I mentioned at the opening of my my message today, which is that all farmers know that you have this narrow window in which you have the harvest. And if you don't harvest it in time, the food will spoil and go to waste. And you have to have sufficient labor in order to pull in that harvest. Otherwise, otherwise the food, as I said, will, will simply rot. And 
Jesus says that the basic setup of the world is that there's plenty of harvest, but there's not a lot of workers, right? There's a, there's a mismatch there of supply, of, 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 of harvest with workers to actually go and bring in that harvest. Jesus says this in other ways. This is a, a, a common idea that Jesus lifts up. So in, in John, around the time of the dialogue of the Samaritan woman, Jesus tells his disciples, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they, all, for they are already white for harvest. Same basic idea, right? He's saying like, wake up, lift up your eyes. Can you see that the fields are white unto harvest? Jesus never assumes that the problem is a lack of harvest. That, that's interesting because I think a lot of people assume that's the problem. They assume that like, oh, the problem is there's just not enough open people and da da da, da. I'm here. Right? But Jesus says, no, the problem is actually diligent workers. Dare we lift up our eyes. Dare we lift up our eyes from our to-do lists and look at the harvest that is all around. On Friday, we, we went on a beautiful hike. It's a great time to go hiking, by the way, uh, now as we, we've really been enjoying our October. And uh, afterwards, we decided to get some Indian food and we went to a particular place in Somerville. And as we were there, our waitress uh, kept coming by and talking to us. And then she asked if she could take our, take her picture with us. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. So yeah, sure. Why not? And so she took a couple pictures with all of us and then got a picture with Bethany and Daniel and and, um, and finally, I just, I just asked her, I said, so where are you from? Tell me your story. And she says, I've just come here from India just for two months, and I'm terribly lonely. And um, the, the pictures sort of gave it away, right? And I said, oh, really? You're, you're lonely? I said, come over to our house. We'd love to have you over for a meal. And um, not a Christian, but I said, we'd love to get to know you and spend some time. Oh, she would lo- love that, and we exchanged information and, and all that. And there was a part of me that, that I actually already wrote her, um, there's a part of me that was like, I keep a list of all the people that we're engaging with and non-Christians. I have about 20 people on my list right now. And there's a part of me that said like, oh, can we actually manage another person in our rotation here? We try at least once a week to have a non-Christian over to our home. And, and I, there was a part of me that was like, oh, I want to reach out to this girl. It feels like a divine encounter. Uh, young, early 20s, sweet, sweet young, young lady there. But I was like, but what about our other 20 people on our list? Are we going to be able to adequately tend to them? And I will say, I walk around all the time thinking the harvest is plentiful, but laborers are few. That there are so many people that if could simply have diligent labor applied to them, would definitely uh, become Christians. And uh, I talked to Tim Kipfer at M29. We often speak about this, that he'll serve up all these people. And there's just not enough people who have the time to, to have people over to their homes and do conversational nights and all that. And I think like, no, 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 this should not be. This is criminal. This is criminal that we have such abundant people on this side and such a deficit of working on this side. So my third point is that lack of laborers are the primary deficit in gaining a harvest. Lack of laborers are the primary deficit in gaining harvest. It's not open people, right? It's not open people. Now, one of the, the facets of being a laborer 
is laborers go into the field. You don't actually collect a harvest remotely, right? You can't sit back and do it on your phone. You can't sit back and do it digitally. You can't do this by thinking nice thoughts in your house. You got to get out and go into the field where people are. And so I would challenge you to look at your schedules over the last week, the last month, and ask, are you in the field? Are you in the field? Are you actually where people are? Or has apathy come in? Has busyness come in? Has a subtle disdain come in? What, what has come into your life that has caused you to, to not be a laborer in the harvest field? Okay, the final verse here is verse 38, where Jesus says, Therefore, I notice the therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Okay, this is, this is a very interesting verse here. So I think many of us remember that in Matthew chapter 4 is where Jesus says that he's going to make his followers into fishers of people, right? He says, come follow me, I'm going to make you fishers. But then Matthew 5 to 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, that's Jesus speaking, and then Matthew 8 to 9 is Jesus acting. Here is this, and, and of course, it's Jesus' authority and his miracles and his teachings on discipleship, but now he begins the process of making fishers of people. This is where it starts. So we had those, those four chapters of Jesus' teaching and actions, but now we're going to see in 9 and in 10 the actual process of Jesus converting his followers into fishers of people, it begins. He uses, he's so determined to be successful in this process that he uses a variety of pictures. So he uses the, word, the, the term fisher. Do you remember how in earlier in Matthew 9, he uses the, the picture of a physician and sick people? That's another description for the work of evangelism and discipleship. He just here uses the picture of shepherd, and then now he also uses the, the picture of a harvester. So he's using, he's using four different word pictures to show us what the role is of a follower of Jesus. And the first step, the first step that he calls his disciples in this journey of becoming fishers is prayer. The beginning of God's mission is prayer. And if you look at it up in Greek, it is a plural verb. Uh, it's not a singular verb, so it's really corporate prayer. One's devotion, one's devotion to corporate prayer for more workers is a powerful marker of the first step of becoming a, a fisher or a physician or a shepherd or a harvester. I think it's utterly fascinating. To me, it's unbelievably fascinating that Jesus doesn't say, pray to the Lord of the harvest that people will have open hearts. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, pray to the Lord of the harvest that there's going to be all these open people you're going to talk to. He, he assumes that that's the case. He just, he, his concern is simply that there's going to be workers to go out and do that, right? He knows that people are already out there who are open. In, in um, to use a chemistry term, the rate-limiting step is a lack of workers, right? That's the bottleneck here. 
bottleneck is not open people on the other side. It's a lack of diligent workers. My dad used to say this a lot in my home growing up. Uh, and so it's got drilled into me. He used to say, Jesus only gave us one prayer request, Finney. Jesus only gave us one prayer request. And this is it. He says, and so imagine, you know, a lot of us come to, oh, pray for me about this, pray for me about that, right? And hopefully we take it seriously. What if Jesus comes to you and says, this is my prayer request, right? And this is it. This is the only prayer request we have in all four of the Gospels where Jesus goes to disciples and says, you pray for this. This is what I want you to set your heart on. How seriously would you take that? You know, if you had, um, a lot of us have been praying for, for the adoption in Africa, and we've been praying a lot as a family, individually, and hey, that was granted. Compare your level of prayer for that, or accreditation, or some sickness, with this request here. Praying to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out workers into his harvest field, right? That's going to be a telling indicator of the first step of becoming a fisher of people. On top of that, the word that Jesus uses here for pray, it's not the normal word, prosevkome. He uses a different word here, which I think the ESV translates it as pray earnestly. The New King James sadly doesn't do that, but the word is like beg or beseech. It's like a strong word. It's not, it's not just the regular word for, for pray. So my fourth point is that the supply of laborers comes from the church's degree of beseeching. The supply of laborers comes from the church's degree of beseeching. Okay, so let, let's summarize now what I've said. So I've said here that accurate spiritual vision leads to compassion for the lost. If you really see the world accurately, you will have intense compassion for the lost. More compassion than you would feel for that story that I read about the indigenous uh, Canadians there. Sad story, but this is even more dire. We would not have apathy or disdain be the response. Secondly, accurate spiritual vision leads to a burden that lack of laborers is the primary deficit. And then that deficit is, begins its remedy by urgent corporate prayer for laborers. Okay, so that's, a, I think, a good summary of, of what this text is about. Okay, so let's do a little thought experiment here to test how well we're doing here with, again, this is the beginning. Okay, this is the beginning of Jesus's uh, practical injunctions to his disciples on how they're going to become fishers of people, how they're going to become physicians, how they're going to become harvesters, how they're going to become sh under shepherds, under the great shepherd. Okay, so let's say that there was a huge explosion. So let's say some bomb went off somewhere in, in nearby here. And we saw people up and down Oakland Street here. They were walking up the driveway. They're bleeding. Their clothes are tattered. They're stunned. They don't have water. They're crying. They're scared. Their family members have been killed. Uh, we, right now, we would cancel meeting. We would all go out there, and we would start to help those folks that are coming down the street because this is urgent. And then our eye looks down, and we see hundreds, thousands of people just all over, just walking around, and just incredibly uh, dire conditions. Our response would be, okay, we're going to call everyone we know. I mean, assume, assume the fire department and all the, the official departments were involved, but we're going to call everyone we know and say, hey, there's a huge problem here. We need every, every person we possibly can get to go attend to all these needs. 
Uh, I have little doubt that we would do that, right? We would do that. I no doubt we would do that. If we if there were literally bleeding, injured people walking up the street in a heartbeat, we would do that. Now, my thesis is that the situation right now is far worse, but you can only see it with the eye of faith. And faith is seeing that invisible reality. It is seeing what we can't see with the natural eye. It is responding to those invisible truths that, that people are harassed and helpless, being skinned alive and, and beat down. They are like sheep without a shepherd. They're like injured animals. Faith is responding to what is invisible. How is, according to that description, how is our faith? Now, we said in Matthew chapter 9, earlier, I said this several times when we were going through it, that faith is really what gets Jesus into action, right? Your faith has made you well. We talked about that with the different healing stories that he does there. How would we say that we are doing with respect to faith in this way, right? I, again, it's, I think it's actually not very complicated. We can look in a very practical way at our faith with respect to the invisible reality that is all around us. Again, it's very easy to settle into apathy, disdain, ignoring what's around us. But how is our faith today? Jesus was worried. He says, when the Son of Man comes again to the earth, will he find faith? Right? That was, that was his great concern, was that he was teaching all these truths, but in general, he, he feared that it would not be met with a response, with action there. And so, so here we are at this, at this conclusion of Matthew chapter 9. Sneak preview into chapter 10. He's going to name specific individuals to go out, and he's going to launch them out into ministry here, building on what he just mentions here at the end of chapter 9. But I'm going to read again the points that, my four points that I raised to ask us how we're doing here. Jesus sees people with compassion, not with apathy or disdain. Seeing people as injured sheep helps induce compassion. Lack of laborers are the primary deficit in gaining a harvest. And then Finally, the supply of laborers comes from the church's degree of beseeching. I challenge us to, to dare to have faith, to, to see the world as Jesus did, to feel the world as Jesus did, and to pray as Jesus did with loud cries and tears. Let's close in prayer. Father, we, we come to you today wanting to to live in harmony with this passage here this transitional passage that begins the great section of jesus's works into the commissioning of his followers and here we we are here we sit in this room as followers of 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 jesus and i pray that we would also lift up our eyes lift up our eyes out of the the whirlwind of daily activities, out of homework, out of assignments, out of to-do lists, out of all the busyness, and to see how dire circumstances are, to see the confusion and helplessness that is all around us as people are without a shepherd. I pray that we would truly live lives of faith as we perceive these realities and act upon them. I pray that we would indeed be able to participate in the harvest while the harvest remains that there would not be 
continued loss of, of fruit and, and grain needlessly because there's this paucity of workers. Help us to think radically and boldly and to be people who do the word and not simply hear. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.